1963, just uh, 46 years ago in Pasadena, California, the area churches met in the Pasadena Civic Auditorium for the last day of Unleavened Bread. We probably had a capacity crowd of about 3,000 people there, and the Ambassador Corral was singing special music. I was uh, a freshman at the time. I'd already had previous college, but we were singing on the risers, and I believe we were singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. And uh, with about 25 or 30 students singing, I suddenly began to feel very feverish and chilly. I felt very sick and began to get nauseous. Uh, after services, an older couple, Eddie and Irene Eckert, deacon and deaconess, somehow learned of my sickness. They offered to drive me from the Pasadena Civic Auditorium to their apartment, which was there on campus, close to the old auditorium. They took me up to their apartment and set me in a rocking chair close to a wall heater. Of course, I was kind of freezing and uh, feverish and shivering, and it was uh, very, very comforting. I felt uh, relaxed. I felt uh, comforted, secure. And beside that, Mrs. Eckert prepared for me hot tea uh, with lemon in it, and I believe there is some whiskey in it. <laughs> and uh, I really began to drink that. I felt so much better. <laughs> but afterwards, I had to go back to the dormitory, and, uh, of course, they put the... Uh, Mrs. Eckert was kind enough to put it a, a little more of that liquid in a bottle in a brown paper sack, and I brought it back to the dormitory. Now, I was older, you know, so it was okay. I'm, I was over 18 at the time. So, but, you know, when I think of Mr. and Mrs. Eckert, I think of the awesome mercy that they demonstrated, they showed me. And I, when I think of mercy, I think of that particular incident which I was sick and feverish and someone had mercy on me. Have you ever experienced mercy? Have you ever shown mercy to others who were sick or ill or in need of help and comfort. Uh, my wife was telling me uh, recently that the Eckerts had also shown her mercy, uh, at least on two occasions when uh, she was out there in Pasadena before we got married. We had the uh, question at the Spokesman Club at the family weekend in Kingston, New York, for the first part of Days of Unleavened Bread, and we actually had that as a question of the Spokesman Club and Topics. What do you think of when you think of mercy? Has anyone ever showed you mercy? Uh, two of the spokesmen talked about being stopped by a policeman, and one of them said, I was very, very respectful, and he only gave me a warning, and that was his experience of mercy. Now, perhaps you've had something a little more profound in terms of mercy, but today we're going to search the Bible for God's character of mercy, and we'll discuss the importance of mercy and how we can be merciful. The title of the sermon today is Blessed Are the Merciful. And you can check back in our old sermon library. Mr. Carl McNair gave a sermon, Courage and Mercy. It's sermon number 83 in our sermon library. And Dr. Meredith gave a sermon, number 90, titled, Are You a Merciful Person? So those were quite some time ago, but I believe we still have them in our library. Let's turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. How would you describe God's nature and his character? Well, first of all, I would hope that 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16 would come to mind. God is love. That's his character. That's his nature. And love is described in the Bible as a way of life. Mr. Herbert Armstrong in his book, Mystery of the Ages, describes God's nature and character this way on pages 47 and 48 of Mystery of the Ages. Quote, The character of both God the Father and Christ the Son is that of spiritual holiness, righteousness, and absolute perfection. That character might be summed up in the one word love, defined as an outgoing, outflowing, loving concern. It is the way of giving, serving, helping, sharing, not the get way. It is the way devoid of coveting, lust and greed, vanity and selfishness, competition, strife, violence and destruction, envy and jealousy, resentment and bitterness. Now listen to this. God's inherent nature is the way of peace, of justice, mercy, happiness, and joy radiating outward toward those he has created. End of quote. 
So God is merciful, and he expects us to be merciful. He tells us in the Beatitudes, the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, just how we must exemplify those attitudes. So how important is this quality of mercy? Those of you who are uh, computer researchers, uh, you can put into your Bible software the word mercy, uh, merciful or mercies, those three words, and you know how many times in the Bible those three words appear in the New King James Version? 10, 20, 40, 50, 60, 100, 200? 355 times in the New King James Version the words mercy, merciful, or mercies appear. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 7, and I would hope uh, that most of you could quote some of the Beatitudes, and I will attempt to uh, quote it. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, he opened his mouth. And when his disciples came unto him, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the... I'll look at this one. (laughs) Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the Beatitudes, the attitudes of God that we need to exemplify in our lives. I gave a sermon two weeks ago on significant change, and we discussed four qualities of change. One of them was mercy, and we'll continue with that subject today. The others were repentance, commitment, and overcoming obstacles. I believe I asked at the time the question, how would you rate your ability to be merciful? On a scale of 100, how would you rate yourself? Would you rate 100 or quite a bit lower? We need to contrast the goodness and the mercy of God with our society today. Let's turn to Romans, the first chapter. What does God say about those who are unmerciful? Romans, the first chapter, starting with verse 27. Romans 1, 27. Certainly our societies are becoming more and more descriptive of Romans 1, verse 27 and on. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one for another. They did not want to keep God in their knowledge, he says in verse 28. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. We have all kinds of attacks on the Bible and on, uh, on Christians, on the very idea of God. Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. The end of verse 31. Certainly characteristic of our age, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so some may say, well, I'm not practicing sexual immorality. I just approve of it. No, they're just as guilty. But these are not going to be in the kingdom of God. Unmerciful people will not be in the kingdom of God unless they repent. Repent. I don't know if you have ever been harsh or unmerciful. You might ask yourself the question, Let's turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Some husbands have been harsh dictators uh, in the past. I know that uh, I've been very helped by Dr. Meredith's article years ago on what all husbands should know. I uh, remember it. I believe it was the June 1966 Plain Truth magazine, an article entitled What All Husbands Should Know. Easy to remember because it was 666, June 1966. But uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Meredith's article was uh, What All Husbands Should Know. And he gave five areas of responsibility, which I've shared with you before and at Feast. It was love and respect, 
support and encouragement, help and protection, leadership and guidance, and inspiration to grow. Those five areas. And I've prayed about those areas so I could be a better husband over the years. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, some men, and uh, I remember such men when I pastored churches back from 1965 on, and uh, they misread this scripture or misapplied it. Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what they read was, uh, well, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, also as Christ is head of the church, he is the Savior of the body. But what the husbands read was, Husbands, make sure your wives submit to you as unto the Lord. And they had this forceful way of making sure But let's understand, husbands, this was not addressed to the husbands. It was addressed to the wives. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husband. It did not say, husbands, you must force your wives to submit unto you. The very next verse, of course, verse 25, says this is how the husbands are supposed to convince their wives to be kind, loving, serving, and submissive. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But there have been instances, of course, where husbands have just been harsh, been stern, have been demanding, over-demanding. But I know I personally have had to grow in patience and love and respect and apply those principles of uh, husbandly leadership over the years. And it's been an inspiration for me to apply those particular responsibilities as written in that article years ago. In Tomorrow's World magazine, January-February 2007, Dr. Meredith's personal was titled, Violence Against Women. Quote, There are thousands of reasons why we should literally cry out to God, Thy kingdom come. One that is often overlooked is the increasing incidence of violence against women. Throughout the world, the sickening problem is growing worse and worse. And then he uh, quotes columnist Bob Herbert, Quote, A girl or woman is sexually assaulted every couple of minutes or so in the United States. The number of seriously battered wives and girlfriends is far beyond the ability of any agency to count. We're all implicated in this carnage because the relentless violence against women and girls is linked at its core to the wider society's casual willingness to dehumanize women and girls to see them first and foremost as sexual vessels, objects, and never, ever as the equals of men. And that was quoted from the Charlotte Observer, October 19, 2006. Domestic violence in the United States continues. In 1995-1996 study uh, conducted of all 50 states in the District of Columbia, approximately 1.3 million women and 835,000 men are physically assaulted by an intimate partner annually in the United States. In 2000, 1,247 women and 440 men were killed by an intimate partner. In recent years, intimate partner uh, killed uh, approximately 35, 33% of female murder victims and 4% of male uh, murder victims. And then in Australia, uh, domestic violence is common. Killings between partners, spouses, accounted for 60% of all family homicides in Australia, with women accounting for 75% of the victims, men comprising the majority of the killers. And then in Canada, a recent report, because of the recession, quote, since the recession took hold, social service organizations say there has been a significant spike in the number of Canadians seeking counseling for family violence and the level of abuse has taken a disturbing turn for the worst, end of quote. So with stresses in our society, face, we face those stresses. They translate into more domestic violence, and we need to be on guard, of course, as, as God's people. And then there's the issue of elder abuse. You might turn to Ephesians, uh, the sixth chapter, or actually Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. And sometimes, as parents, 
become elderly, they become grandparents, and they become dishonored. And we find that in one report, the National Center for Victims of Crime in 2008 um, gave the following information about elder abuse. Older women are far more likely than men, 67% versus 32% to suffer from abuse. Slightly more than half of the alleged perpetrators, 53%, were female. 20% of elder abuse involved caregiver neglect, 15% centered on, now listen to this, emotional, psychological, or verbal abuse. I gave a sermon some time ago on the power of words. So we need to make sure that we aren't emotionally abusing someone. You may not be physically abusing someone, but you might verbally or emotionally be abusing someone or psychologically. 15% were involved, uh, involved financial exploitation. 11% was physical abuse. 1% was sexual abuse. I won't turn there, but you know Leviticus 19, verse 32, honoring the elderly. You shall rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. As the new King James has it, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the eternal. And I must uh, say that uh, there are some here in the office that do that, and it's just very, very encouraging. Uh, you know, when an old man comes into the office to see uh, a secretary rise because she is trying to apply God's word in honoring the gray-headed. But these problems of elder abuse, spousal abuse, child abuse are ongoing, and we need to be on guard ourselves that we do not become uh, vulnerable to uh, abuse ourselves or become abusers. Of course, the antidote to that is Galatians 5, 23, that, uh, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, or gentleness in the King James Version, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness in the King James Version, self-control, against such there is no law. People are they get upset at laws. They don't like laws. They'd rather have a lawless society. Well, here's something against which there's no law. And just practice the fruits of the Spirit. There is no law against love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. And then, of course, in Colossians, uh, the third chapter, he talks about... Uh, let's turn to Colossians, the third chapter... For those of you who are Bible students, um, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 are chapters on the old man and the new man. Uh, Colossians 3 uh, is, of course, one of uh, our favorite scriptures. Dr. Meredith quotes from this often. Colossians, the third chapter. He tells us to put off the uh, fleshly carnality attitudes and behaviors. Verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And oh, isn't that present around the Internet these days? Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who has created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor circumcision, um, nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. We are to be unified in the body of Christ as God's people, baptized into one body by one spirit. We are family, as the little children just sang that beautiful song, family. Verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave, so you also must do, and above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's just wonderful truth and admonition and instruction here, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, not just casually, but it is a current, ongoing thought process. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, 
to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. If the word of Christ dwells in you, you need to read the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and sims and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just beautiful Christian attitudes and behaviors that we must be putting on, including tender mercies. So, brethren, we need to examine our behavior, our habits, our attitudes. Do we ever exhibit uncontrolled anger? Do we ever abuse others verbally, emotionally, psychologically? Are we ever unmerciful? If we are, we need to repent, we need to confess our sins, we need to change our heart, our mind, our spirit, and our attitude. Because unmerciful men, unmerciful women will not be in God's kingdom. Now let's notice the contrast between merciful and unmerciful, uh, starting in Proverbs, the 12th chapter. This morning I looked at a few of these and uh, highlighted them with a blue highlighter. And, uh, you know, some of you have done the chain in your Bible. A chain is where you start with one scripture, and then you put the next reference in the margin to the next reference to that topic, such as the 12 places of the New Testament where the name Church of God appears. You start with the first scripture and go through the whole New Testament because you have a chain or a connection or a reference in your margin noting all 12 of the references in the New Testament of the Church of God. Well, here... I'll just give you a a short chain on uh, mercy here, starting with Proverbs, the 12th chapter, and verse 10. Actually, this is almost in the middle of the chain, but I just wanted to uh, make a point here. Uh, Proverbs 12 and verse 10. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So even the cruelest individuals who think, oh, they're, they're getting soft, they're getting a little uh, compassionate, uh, God says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Let's start back. We'll come back to that, but uh, we'll go through a quick chain here in uh, Proverbs showing God's approach to mercy. Proverbs 3 and verse 3. And I put my margin here after 3, uh, Proverbs 3, 3, 11, 17 for the next one. But let's let's read Proverbs 3 and verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Now, mercy isn't just uh, held in isolation. It's connected with the other beautiful attitudes of Christianity. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, some of our ladies have beautiful necklaces, you know, maybe pearls or some other kind of gem. Uh, But God says, look, let mercy and truth bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In the margin, I have 1117. So we go to the next reference to mercy in the book of Proverbs. As I said, there are 355 references, so we're not going to cover all 355 today. Unless you would like to go to midnight, then we will try to do the best we can. Proverbs 11, verse 17. The merciful man does good for his own soul. No, it's going to benefit you. When you give, you are the one who benefits. But he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. Over the page then to 1210, I put 1210 in the margin. One we just read to begin with. A righteous man regards the life of his animal. He's concerned with the creation. He's caring. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The next one is 1421. Proverbs 14, verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. We have a society that's not very happy or tries to find its happiness in the pleasures of sin for a season. And, of course, they pay the penalty later on. Because as you sow, so shall you reap as Paul wrote in Galatians 6. Then verse uh, 22. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. Then down to verse 31. So there are three references here in Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, 31. 
He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. Then chapter 16, 6, another combination of mercy and truth. Proverbs 16, 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the eternal, one departs from evil. If you've got a problem with a wrong habit, choose to fear God. For by the fear of the eternal, one departs from evil. 2028 is the next reference. 2028. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. Now, in the margin here in the New King James Version, for loving kindness, it has mercy. Well, the Hebrew is chesed, or C-H-E-H-E-D, or chesed, uh, which is translated loving kindness, forgiveness, um, or even mercy, uh, most uh, prominently. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by mercy, or chesed, uh, loving kindness, he upholds the throne. Then chapter 21, 21, right across the page. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. And one final one here, chapter 28, and uh, verse 13 in the book of Proverbs. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So you're trying, you're, you have a habitual sin, and you're hiding it up from the people, you're hiding it from your family, you're hiding it from the church. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Well, those are some of the dynamics that God gives us as we contrast those who are merciful and those who are unmerciful. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not permissiveness. Well, some would take that to mean so. Of course, Jude warns us against turning grace into license to sin or lewdness. And mercy is not, on the other extreme, pharisaical legalism. So how would you express mercy? This is uh, John R. W. Stott's commentary on the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes this comment regarding the blessed are the merciful. This is on page 47. The merciful, this is uh, referring, of course, to uh, Matthew, the fifth chapter. Stott writes, quote, Mercy is compassion for people in need. Richard Lenski helpfully distinguishes from grace. The noun elios, E-L-E-O-S in the, the Greek, is the Greek New Testament word translated mercy. Always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. These results of sin. And charis... C-H-A-R-I-S in the Greek, grace, always deals with the sin and guilt itself. The one extends relief, the other pardon, the one cures, heals, helps, the other cleanses and reinstates. And he continues, we cannot receive the mercy and forgiveness of God unless we repent. And we cannot claim to have repented of our sins if we are unmerciful towards the sins of others. Nothing moves us to forgive like the wondering knowledge that we have ourselves been forgiven. Well, it gives us a little perspective on mercy. Mercy is tied closely to forgiveness. Let's turn to James, the second chapter. Well, one of the key ingredients of mercy is to identify another person's needs and to fulfill that need. Of course, that's also a definition for love. James, the second chapter. Uh, one of our Visits to Ashboro, uh, North Carolina congregation, Mr. George Webb, who's uh, spoken here, uh, gave a sermonette on mercy and truth. And he gave the example of one of his employees who deserved to be fired. But Mr. Webb was able to give him another chance. The employee was married, had children, and needed the work. So mercy and judgment must go together. You have to pray for both. It isn't either or. It's both and, mercy and judgment, and you need the wisdom to apply both in all those situations. And so in James 2 and verse 13, he states, let no one, I'm sorry, James 2 verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we have to pray for wise judgment. We need both unconditional love and we need loving authority. We have a sermon uh, titled Judging Righteously, number 264. So I'll refer you to that in terms of judging righteously. But what are some of the other definitions of mercy? Uh, One from uh, the... International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is mercy is a distinctive Bible word characterizing God as revealed to men. Other synonyms in the Greek, elios, is kindness, beneficence. Or elio, to show kindness, are the chief words rendering mercy in the New Testament. Otherwise, pity, compassion, pitiful, uh, kind, compassionate, forgiving, or analeos, not forgiving, or without mercy. So those are some synonym, synonyms and descriptors of mercy. So think of those characteristics and those qualities when you think of mercy. Kindness, loving kindness, pity, compassion, forgiving. And kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, as we already read in Galatians 5.22. Now here's another description of mercy we had in our fun show there in uh, the family weekend in Kingston, New York, a uh, presentation of this, but I thought, well, this is interesting. It's a different perspective on mercy. And this is from Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, Act 4, Scene 1. And Portia is speaking to Shylock about judgment and mercy. And this is in the, the, the Old uh, English, so I'm just going to read it in the Old English for two or three sentences, and then I'm going to read it in the modern translation. I think we can understand it better. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as this gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. I'm going to read a modern version of that, which is from enotes.com slash Shakespeare. The quality of mercy is not restricted. It drops as the gentle rain from heaven on the place beneath the clouds. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives mercy and him that takes mercy. It's most powerful in the most powerful people. It suits the throne king better than his crown. His royal wand shows the force of earthly power, the quality to amaze and rule, where the dread and fear of kings sits. But mercy is above the wave of his wand. It sits on a throne in the hearts of kings. It is a quality of God himself. And earthly power then shows itself like God's when mercy goes with justice. So Jew, he's addressing a Jewish uh, individual here, So Jew, though justice is your plea, consider this, that if we all got justice, none of us would see salvation. We pray for mercy, and that same prayer teaches us all to do the deeds of mercy. I have spoken this much to soften the justice of your plea, which if you follow, the strict court of Venice must give a ruling against the merchant there. So again, it gives you a different perspective on mercy. Shakespeare certainly was able to give uh, effective descriptions. But let's notice God's character of mercy. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, one of my favorite scriptures. When you think about honoring God's name, do you think of God's title and God's description as given here in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter and verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We had uh, an article in the World Ahead Weekly update by Dr. Douglas Winnale, March 5th, The Importance of Mercy. I'll just read a couple sentences from that commentary. 
One of the fundamental qualities that we need to develop as Christians if we hope to become like God and reign with Jesus Christ is mercy. Showing mercy involves patience, understanding, compassion, and willingness to forgive. The scriptures reveal that God is full of mercy and compassion, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and that he requires us to develop the same qualities, Micah 6, 8, Hosea 6, 6. As we strive to develop the mind of God, we will come to understand the importance of showing mercy to everyone we deal with, and we will be preparing to rule with Jesus Christ at his coming kingdom. Let's turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. We see that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And this just emphasizes or reemphasizes that quality of God. Ephesians, the second chapter. Oh, yes, there is some tea here. Thank you. Ephesians, the second chapter, and uh, starting with verse 4. Oh, that's very good tea. Thank you. Um, I'll invite you to tea after services. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, so God is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together to make and made us sit together in the heavenly places, or in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he is rich in mercy. Let's turn back to James, the fifth chapter, James 5, because many of us, particularly in this severe recession around the world, are facing trials. Many of our brethren have lost their jobs. As we heard in the announcements, there have been more applications for church assistance. Uh, James, the fifth chapter. But how can we face those trials and those stresses? Uh, God has a purpose for allowing us to experience trials. And so this lesson is made clear in James 5 and verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You know, we uh, grew up in an urban area, but I'm thankful that my parents taught me how to plant flowers. I used to have, uh, you know, you plant a seed, and and this one was a morning glory. And then you put a string up and nail it to the side of the house, and, and over time the morning glory grows. And I hope that all of you parents have at least given your children the opportunity to plant a seed sometime in your life. I hope you all all do that. Teach your children to do that. It's a, an amazing experience. And I may have told you before about, uh, I guess I was a senior in high school. Anyway, back in those days, the uh, New York Daily News was offering this wonderful uh, offer of about 12 different trees and, and little shrubs for all about, uh, you know, $3. And, of course, that was back around 1954 or so, so about, what, 55 years ago. So it was a little less expensive. And anyway, I got all these trees, and I planted them there at 28 Huber Avenue, uh, Meriden, Connecticut. And uh, to this day, I go back. I, not, I was there four years ago. There are two eucalyptus trees that just that I planted about 50 years ago, or more than 50 years ago, just towering above the house. And so it's just a, a pleasure to know I planted those trees, you know, 50, more than 50 years ago. I, t- I think I told you the story before, of course, uh, you know, how to finance your children's college education. That was Dr. Hayes' idea. That a hardwood tree apparently uh, can get, what, $20,000 if it's a kind of... I don't know, a good hardwood tree. But anyway, um, Dr. Hayes' idea was that when your child is born, you plant a hardwood tree so that by the time the child graduates from high school 18 years later, you can sell that tree for ten dollars or $20,000. And the problem is, are you living in the same location? You know, that, but uh, anyway, how did we get on that subject? 
Oh, yes, patience is the point here in verse, uh, verse 7. Verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we counted them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. I think in the King James, it's patience. And seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall under judgment. But the point is here that Job went through a terrible trial. But in the end, what was the lesson? That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Verse 11. And so when we go through trials and tests, we know that one of the major purposes for that trial and that test is to develop patience. As James says in chapter 1, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be entire, lacking nothing. Patience is something that in the Western world, uh, in the me generation, we want it now, we wanted it yesterday, uh, but God wants to teach us patience Let's turn to Psalm 136, again, showing God's quality of uh, being merciful and his purpose. So he lets us go through trials and tests so that we can understand his mercy, and we learn patience and perseverance. Psalm 136, we sang this, uh, thankfully, uh, we sang this just before the sermon, just before the children's special music today. Psalm 136, 26 verses, 26 times the psalmist says, For his mercy endures forever. Verse 1, Psalm 136, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And it goes on for 26 verses, for his mercy endures forever. While we're here, let's take a look at a couple other examples. Psalm 145, over the page, and here I've shot a short chain. 145, verses 8 and 9. The Eternal is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Eternal is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. And then Psalm 147, across the page. 147.11, the eternal takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Well, that's God's quality, and I hope that you will be uh, looking through your Bible and marking and highlighting the word mercy in your Bible. So, by nature, God is merciful, and of course, Christ is our great high priest. Let's turn to that in uh, Hebrews, uh, the fourth chapter, Hebrews Four. The whole book of Hebrews is called the priesthood book. Hebrews 4. Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter, uh, chapter 3. Um, in verse uh, 5, but that's uh, it's a good verse too. They're all good verses. <clears throat> the whole section here. But, uh, of course, verse 14, seeing then that we have, chapter 4, verse 14, Hebrews, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I hope we all recognize our need for mercy, but God has opened the door for us to boldly come before his throne for that mercy. And sometimes it's uh, because we've sinned, sometimes it's because... Uh, we're in a terrible strait physically or financially or some other way, and we're praying and asking God for mercy. I've 
shared with you uh, examples before how I prayed for mercy when I had uh, three book uh, reports uh, due at the end of the semester and I hadn't done them all semester and prayed for God for mercy and, and uh, had to do those three book reports as quickly as I could and, and uh, ask some lovely sisters in Christ to help me. They were co-ed ambassador girls who typed up my three outlines and one, of course, is sitting here. So, you know, God answered my prayer for mercy. But you need, we all need to come boldly before God's throne and ask for mercy. Let's turn to um, Luke, the uh, 10th chapter, Luke 10. And uh, we won't spend too much time on this, but you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. How should we show mercy? Here was this lawyer that tempted Christ, Luke 10 and verse 25. The lawyer stood and said, Teacher, what should we do to inherit eternal life? And he asked him what is written in the law. And, of course, he answered him with the two great commandments. And But wanting to justify himself, verse 29, he said, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gave the example of the man who fell among thieves and was wounded and was left half dead. A certain priest came by, a Levite, ignored him. But here this despised Samaritan, verse 33, uh, had compassion on him. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35, on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So Jesus asks this uh, lawyer who wanted to justify himself, which of these was, do you think, was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Of course, we have to be careful uh, in this dangerous day and age. In fact, California has a good Samaritan law. Uh, because so many people have stopped to help others, have gotten injured, and the uh, Good Samaritan Law is supposed to protect uh, people from litigation if they are intending to help someone as a Good Samaritan. But we have to do our part in trying to show mercy to others. So how do we pray, uh, how do we show mercy to others? We've just seen the Good Samaritan story of how to show mercy, that is to help someone in need and to go above and beyond. James, the third chapter, again, James 3, how do we show mercy? We pray for godly wisdom, because godly wisdom is full of mercy. Are you demonstrating godly wisdom in your life every day? James, the third chapter, and I hope that you do pray for godly wisdom. He again shows the contrast between bitter envying and self-seeking in verse 14 and Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, even demonic, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion, and every evil thing are there. But James 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We show mercy, again, by exercising godly wisdom. We need to pray for that godly wisdom regularly. There's another way of showing uh, mercy. That's Matthew, the 18th chapter. Matthew 18. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my... Shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up to seven times? And uh, Jesus said, not unto seven, but up to seventy times seven. Matthew 18 and uh, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so the one fell down before him and said, have patience on me. In verse 27, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. 
But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that they had, he had done. Then his master, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. And Christ has forgiven us our whole sins, our whole life, our whole death penalty. Verse 33, Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. How do we show mercy? By forgiving others. I read to you... Uh, stories from Chicken Soup of the Unsinkable Soul, but this is a remarkable story as well, and I know that each of us would have uh, perhaps different reactions to such a case. This is on page 270, <clears throat> The Power of Forgiveness, written by an individual who was uh, stabbed uh, as a boy. His name is Chris Carrier. In 1974, walking home from school the last day before Christmas vacation, I excitedly thought about the upcoming holiday as only 10-year-old boys can dream. A few doors from my home in Coral Gables, Florida, a man came up to me and asked if I would help him with the decorations for a party he was hosting for my father. Thinking that he was a friend of my dad's, I agreed to go with him. What I didn't know was that this man held a grudge against my family. He had been employed as a nurse for an elderly relative, but he had been fired because of his drinking. After I agreed to accompany him, he drove his motor home to an isolated area north of Miami where he stopped by the side of the road and stabbed me in the chest several times with an ice pick. He then drove west to the Florida Everglades, walked me out among the bushes, shot me through the head, and left me to die. Fortunately, the bullet passed behind my eyes and exited my right temple without causing any brain damage. When I regained consciousness six days later, I was unaware that I had been shot. I sat by the side of the road and was found by a man who stopped to help me. Two weeks later, I described the person who had assaulted me to a police artist, and my uncle recognized the resulting portrait as the man who attacked me. My assailant was brought in, along with other, other suspects. However, the trauma and stress took its toll, and I couldn't identify him. Unfortunately, the police could not obtain any physical evidence to link him to the crime, so he was never charged. The assault left me blind in my left eye, but otherwise uninjured. And with the love and support of my family and friends, I went back to school and resumed my life. For the next three years, I lived with tremendous anxiety. Most nights, I woke up frightened, imagining I heard someone coming in the back door, and I'd wind up sleeping at the foot of my parents' bed. Then when I was 13... That all changed. One night during a Bible study with my church youth group, I realized that God's providence and love, having miraculously kept me alive, were the basis for my life security. In his hands, I could live without fear or anger, and so I did. I finished school, earning a bachelor's degree and a master's in divinity. I married my wonderful wife, Leslie. We have two beautiful toddlers, Amanda and Melody. In September 1966, Major Charles Scherer of the Coral Gables Police Department, who had worked on the original investigation of my case, called to tell me that the 77-year-old assailant had finally confessed. Blind from glaucoma, in poor health, without family or friends, he was in a North Miami Beach nursing home. I visited him there. The first time I went to see him, he apologized for what he had done to me, and I told him that I had forgiven him. I visited him many times after that, introducing him to my wife and girls, offering hope and some semblance of family in the days before his death. He was always glad when I came by. I believe that our friendship eased his loneliness and was a great relief to him after 22 years of regrets. I know the world might view me as the victim of a horrible tragedy, but I consider myself the victim of many miracles. The fact that I'm alive and have no mental deficiency defies the odds. I've got a loving wife and a beautiful family. 
I've been given as much promise as anybody else and ample opportunities. I've been blessed in a lot of ways. And while many people can't understand how I could forgive him, from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. If I'd chosen to hate him all these years or spent my life looking for revenge, then I wouldn't be the man I am today, the man my wife and children love. A remarkable story to have someone who stabbed you as a 10-year-old and then to be able to uh, be preserved by God miraculously and be able to forgive this attacker many years later. We need to consider our attitude of mercy and forgiveness. We think of God's forgiveness to us. We think of the new covenant in Hebrews 8 and verse 12 where he says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We think of the examples of the Apostle Paul. We heard uh, that uh, example in the sermonette. And let's turn to 1 Timothy, the first chapter, 1 Timothy 1, and see how the Apostle Paul viewed mercy. In fact, uh, the commentators make the statement that mercy is one of the major themes in the Apostle Paul's writings. But notice here in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13. Well, we'll start with verse 12. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, as we heard in the sermonette, was a persecutor. He had persecuted the true church. And uh, he says in uh, verse 15, 1 Timothy, oh, we don't have, okay, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, Paul, who persecuted the true church and stood by while true Christians were put to death, God still had mercy on him. And he's a pattern, an example that the worst of sinners can be forgiven. And if the worst of sinners can be forgiven, so can you. Let's turn to Psalm 51. How did David look to God for mercy? You know, Psalm 51 and verse 1, you know that uh, the prophet Nathan had come to him and told him the story about a rich man who took the poor man's one little lamb. And David said, that man shall be put to death. And Nathan said, David, you are that man. So David had pronounced the death sentence on himself. He had made a judgment on himself. So then how did David pray? Did he say, Lord, give me justice? No, he did not. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge." I hope we've all prayed that prayer from time to time, that God does give us abundant mercy when we repent. So Isaiah 55, Isaiah the 55th chapter, one uh, scripture that we use on a telecast and in our writings to help people to change their lives, and something, of course, that uh, is ongoing for all of us. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the eternal while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's coming a time when it's going to be too late. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the eternal 
and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, God will abundantly pardon if we remember that we must repent, that we must continue to seek him with all our heart. When we think of mercy, we need to think again of God's character. And uh, we've already seen this, but let's turn back to 1 Timothy again. 1 Timothy. So there was the example, the Apostle Paul, who sought God's mercy. God gave him mercy as an example for us. King David asked for God's mercy, not for justice. And God says that he will abundantly pardon. He'll give us abundant mercy if we seek him and if we forsake our wrong thoughts and attitudes. This is just an example of how the Apostle Paul's thinking reflected itself in writing to Timothy, in this case, and to uh, the churches. He says here in verse 1, 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, the apostle Paul extended grace, mercy, and peace. And as you read through uh, 2 Timothy 1, Titus 1, and even the Apostle John and 2 John and Jude, uh, they started their salutation, their greetings with grace, mercy, and peace. Let's turn to uh, Luke, the 18th chapter. Luke 18. Well, how much of our character is associated with mercy, with patience, with forgiveness, with compassion. Luke 18 and verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. We have to be very careful about self-righteousness. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. <laughs> I mean, it's all this almost hilarious when you read this. You know, oh, I'm thankful that I'm, I'm just not like all these oddballs out here. I'm not all like these, you know, sinners. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I've explained this before, but the Greek has the definite article, T-H-E. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, of course, as counselors, when we've met people on the baptizing tours and others, and we ask them, well, how do you, what do you think about your past life? Oh, I've sinned just like everyone else. You know, by saying like everyone else, they're justifying their sin. They're not saying, I am the sinner who needs forgiveness. But this tax collector said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not just sinning like everyone else. You know, I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for my sins. I am guilty. God, be merciful to me. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man asked for mercy, and God is merciful to those who are repentant, to those who humble themselves before God and who go to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace in time of need. God has chosen to have mercy on us, but God will judge the unmerciful. We briefly discussed some of the statistics uh, regarding wife abuse, uh, elder abuse, family abuse, and our foundation is fracturing and coming apart in many regions. But God's people must be on guard against practicing verbal abuse, physical abuse, psychological and emotional abuse. And if any of us, and I'm talking to our brethren around the world here, are practicing oppression, abuse, or evil, we need to repent deeply. 
Domestic violence and oppression destroy families. Domestic violence is a sin against God. We have to practice unconditional love, mercy, kindness, humility, and forgiveness in our homes and in our communities. And we must submit to one another in the fear of God, as it tells us in Ephesians 5 and verse 21. As I mentioned, there are 355 biblical references for the words mercy, mercies, and merciful. So this coming week and beyond, as you read your Bible, I encourage you to take a highlighter or some marking pen or pencil and mark those words in your Bible as you come across them. Focus on God's word. Focus on mercy. Remember how Jesus responded to those who pleaded for mercy. I won't turn there, but it says in Romans 9, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So, brethren, let's come boldly before God's throne. As we read in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, in verse 15, let's turn to Micah, the sixth chapter, Micah 6. As you know, as Jesus referring to Micah, the sixth chapter, when he excoriated the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, Pharisees! You've omitted the weightier matters of the law, of justice, mercy, and faith. And, of course, Jesus was inspired, had inspired Micah, the sixth chapter, memorization verse, verse 8, Micah 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's pray that we can grow in the qualities of wisdom, judgment, and mercy, and have those in perfect balance. Strive to practice mercy this week. Pray that you can discern someone else's need and pray to fulfill that need in mercy. Mr. and Mrs. Eddie Eckert will always be remembered by me and my wife for their mercy to me many years ago. I'll always remember their kindness, and I certainly am going to thank them in the resurrection for the mercy they showed me. Mercy is a quality of our Father in heaven. God is rich in mercy, as we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and Christ is our merciful high priest. So may God help all of us, brethren, to practice mercy, forgiveness, grace, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. As Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy.